0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
1: My argument would be that it isn't just biffing people with your fist or bayoneting them that wins wars. Wars are won through intelligence. They're won through the application of the mind. They're won through you know, signals intelligence. Alan Turing, Bletchley Park, these kind of things help to win wars. Um, And Ian Fleming is part of that.
0: I'm Umar Pagan, and today on Bookmark, I'm speaking to author Nicholas Rankin about Ian Fleming's most remarkable contribution to this world. No, not James Bond, but rather a special commando unit, a small group of intelligence-gathering raiders who would attack and plunder targeted German establishments, radar stations, Kriegsmarine offices, naval installations, and the like, and pinch anything that might be useful. Code books, movement orders, bits of enigma machines and so forth, they were absolutely crucial during the last days of the Third Reich.
1: Hello, my name is Nick Rankin. I'm a journalist and writer. I write books under the name Nicholas Rankin, but I was known as a broadcaster as Nick Rankin, and everyone calls me Nick. And I've written five books now, four of which have been published. And, well, I've always been interested in ideas stories and adventures, and I try to write the kind of books that I would like to read.
0: Ian Fleming's Commandos was incredibly interesting, especially to a lifelong James Bond fan. I've known of Fleming, and I've known of the influence his time in the military had on his writing, but of course, I never knew just how much influence until I read your book. But before we get into that, if you could Quickly, just tell me how you came upon this story.
1: Most of my books spring out of other books. So when I'm writing a book, I was writing a book about Stevenson, and and his house was bombed. And that led to a book about bombing many years later. And something in that book led to the book on deception. And I think it began really with an exhibition there was organized by that great writer, my friend, Ben McIntyre. He wrote a book about Ian Fleming and James Bond. And there was an exhibition at the Imperial War Museum, that great museum in in London. And I went to the press opening as a journalist of this, and I met various people there, including the daughter of Admiral Godfrey, who will come to him, but was the director of naval intelligence in the war, the man who hired Ian Fleming. And I met various other people there. And at the same time, when I was looking for photographs of, for, for my previous book, I came upon a, a series of photos at the National Archives, and I recognized a journalist called Charles Wheeler, who was a fluent German speaker and had been in this commando unit, 30 assault unit, and putting those two together, a BBC man, Ian Fleming, naval intelligence. I thought this is a really interesting area. I would like to dig further into that. So it came out of journalism and curiosity, but I didn't know the full story. But then you have to go out and you start digging and making connections. And it led to the book, Ian Fleming's Commanders.
0: So Nick, let's talk Ian Fleming. He's an interesting character in himself because I suppose because of the pop culture landmark that is James Bond, people have come to just tie both these individuals together, Ian Fleming and James Bond. They're almost indiscernible.
1: I think that is completely wrong. There have been a recent sort of series on television, which (laughs) I was probably rather rude about, uh, (laughs) but which attempted to equate Fleming with Bond to say that he was a secret agent. Now, this is just not true. Like most writers, the writer himself isn't the man of action. I mean, obviously, people would say Hemingway is and all the rest of it. But most writers, most imaginative writers, take a man like Stevenson. The man was pretty much an invalid. Of course, he dreamed of action and freedom and movement and and doing piratical things. But there he was, often writing in bed, coughing up blood. The point is, there's a gap between the writer at the desk and the fantasy that, that he has. I think the way to look at Ian Fleming is to look at him and his brother, Peter Fleming. There were there were several Fleming brothers, four Fleming brothers, and what the crucial thing that happened to them was that their father was killed in the First World War. So they lost their father. Ian Fleming was nearly nine. His brother was nearly 10, Peter. And this had a, a dramatic effect on them. Both men therefore spent the rest of their lives, in a sense, looking for father figures. They also had to live up to their father. They were told, you are now the man, you have to be a father. And so they went into the military. Their father had been killed in the war. Ian Fleming ended up as Commander Ian Fleming. His brother ended up as Colonel Peter Fleming. They would become people who served their king and country because that is what their father had done. And there's also a rivalry between them. Peter was fantastically successful. The weird thing is, is that he's almost completely forgotten now. Before the war, if you had said Fleming, the famous Fleming was Peter Fleming. He married Celia Johnson. He wrote all these successful travel books. He kind of revolutionized the travel book with a comic book called Brazilian Adventure, news from Tartary. He traveled around the world. He was incredibly stylish. And, whereas Ian, in a way, was a kind of a failure. He hadn't gone to university. He'd been thrown out of Sandhurst. He'd failed to get into the diplomatic service. He was now the worst stockbroker in London. <laughs> but he was a very bright, intelligent, literary, but rather louche character. Who spent his life chasing women and drinking and playing cards and things like that. And he really hadn't gone anywhere with his life, not like his brother, until this moment in 1939, when he is picked to become the personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence. Well, then the war came along and you joined the Royal Navy. You became personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence. Well, this led, not surprisingly, to some rather violent action, I believe. Well, not so much that, really. It was a very interesting. life. I took part in the Dieppe raid, which is a very bloody affair, and I had some exciting adventures around the world. And
0: altogether, I had an extremely. I couldn't have had a more interesting war, if I can have an interesting war.
1: And this transforms his life, because he is there working as the assistant to the head of British naval intelligence for the next six years. And he's 28 or something when this starts. And so he has an incredibly interesting war. And the qualities, the smooth qualities, the charm, the ability to mix, the ability to sort of manipulate other people, all these Etonian qualities he used brilliantly. And presumably your naval intelligence experience provided some useful source material for your later books. Yes, it uh, taught one what one could say in writing thrillers and what one couldn't say, and of course it taught you really how the intelligence machine does work. I can't say that, of course, I tell that exactly in my books because our fiction and the whole thing is much larger than life mm-hmm. but as i said at least it tells you what mistakes not to make let's be clear this is naval intelligence okay he becomes a naval officer britain now has 38 ships in the entire navy in 1939 it was the largest and most powerful navy in the world and the naval intelligence division was had been incredibly important in the First World War. Because the Navy was all over the world, it had naval attaches and naval people keeping an eye on events. We had a British Empire, you know, a fifth of the world or whatever.
0: That was built on the seas.
1: Was built on the seas. It's built on sea power. If you think about, I don't know, the route out to where you are in Malaysia, the all-red route, you know, it goes from... Britain to Gibraltar, to Malta, through the Suez Canal, British Egypt, down to Aden, and then over to India, and then, you know, towards Malaysia, Australia, New Zealand. This is the all-red route. They are calling at ports that are under the British Empire. Now, in those ports, there are men sending back information and intelligence, naval intelligence. In the First World War, it was naval intelligence that sent T.E. Lawrence into Arabia, Behind Hogarth and the Cairo Intelligence Bureau is naval intelligence, because they're the ones who are keen to know if anyone is going to threaten these sea lines and to deal with restless tribes within these places. There isn't a naval intelligence division now, I may say, but there was then when there was an empire. So Admiral Godfrey, this man who hired Fleming, became the kind of father figure. He had. Uh, three daughters and no son, and Ian Fleming has three brothers and no father. I mean, it's just kind of a a strange fit, this father figure. And he is the basis, really, Admiral Godfrey, in my view, is the basis of M, who, if you read the James Bond books, as you know, Admiral Miles Messy is a naval admiral. It's Commander Bond. It's not Colonel Bond or Wing Commander Bond. He's not in the RAF. He's not in the Army. He's
0: Navy. So if Fleming wasn't the man of action, how involved was he in real-time, real-war intelligence? Okay. His
1: name was 17F. That's, he would sign things 17F. He was in Room 17 or Section 17, NID 17, which was really the clearinghouse for all the naval intelligence activities. Because he was the personal assistant to the DNI, the Director of Naval Intelligence, he was often his eyes and ears. He would go to meetings for him. So let me tell you what his involvement was. Early in 1940, about March 1940, he was indoctrinated, which means he was allowed to know about the ultra-secret, the fact that uh, Bletchley Park had broken some of the German codes and were breaking more of them. He regularly went to Bletchley Park. He knew that these codes were being broken. He knew Alan Turing, because Turing was working for naval intelligence. Secondly, he often went to meetings representing the DNI with uh, C, the man who wrote in Greening, the head of the secret intelligence service. He often went to Baker Street to talk to the people in SOE, special operations executive. He was in touch with people in MI5, the security service. So the point is, he may not be active in doing things with these people, but he knows what they're up to. And this seems to me a a far better background for a writer than, you know, thundering about this guy in Belgrade. He is across (laughs) or knows about all kinds of operations. His job, I hadn't mentioned, but he was a journalist, had been a journalist for Reuters. And so he was able to write good, crisp memos. He was able to Uh, fight his boss's corner. He was able to assuage. He had to go to, as I say, lots of meetings across Whitehall. And even though he didn't actually do things, he knew about them. And he knew the people who did them. So this is the kind of basis. As he said later, Bond is based around some of the people that I met
0: during the war. So let's talk 30 Assault Unit. Um, Tell me what they did. It's, it's, It's an incredible story. And I'm reading your book, I was perplexed as to why no one's made it into a movie yet, or whether it has been and I've just missed it.
1: (laughs) I'm afraid. I'm afraid it has been made into a movie, and I'm very glad you missed it. (laughs) Because it's possibly one of the worst movies ever made. Um, (laughs) And it's truly terrible. Of course, all these... (sighs) Yeah, well... (laughs) We won't go there. I sha not promote it. I'll tell you its name. But um, it, assiduous fans, if you search a film, that any film that combines Sean Bean and Danny Dyer, you will be able to find this film. It, <laughs> it was never shown in a cinema. It went straight to video, as it were. And they hope to make a sort of series out of it, but it is crass in all sorts of ways. Ian Fleming does appear. Anyway, we won't go there. Um, it is very exciting, their story. What did this unit do? What was the idea? The idea of 30th Assault Unit was that it would be working for naval intelligence. So it was formed of Royal Marines. The Royal Marines are, as it were, the soldiers, if you like, of the Royal Navy. They go on the ships, they storm ashore. They're one of the oldest units in the British Army, you know, per mare, per terran, by land and sea. They're the spearhead of the Royal Navy on shore. We still have Royal Marine commandos, and the Royal Marines are, you know, very important now. So the, 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 the muscle, if you like, the brawn, would be Royal Marines. And around them would be these officers from the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve or Royal Navy officers who were scientific or technical or whatever. And they would go ashore and they would be, as it were, sailors in jeeps because they would be naval officers and they'd maybe have sort of mixed uniforms, half Navy, half Army, and they would charge ashore somewhere and they would be trying to get intelligence. Now, as I say, the first use of them was a jubilee, and it was a disaster. They really started getting into action after Operation Torch, which is November 1942, which was the American and British invasion of North Africa to clear Rommel and the Italians out of North Africa. And they went into Algiers, and in, in the North African campaign, they picked up a whole lot of interesting stuff. Then they were in the invasion of Sicily, and they also did good work there. But their real triumphs came when they got expanded and given more money and equipment was after the invasion of Normandy, D-Day, 1944, when these small jeep-led units, you know, plunged through France, then on into Germany to to try and get intelligence and information. Mm -hmm. The two great coups, I think, were capturing the entire German naval archives from 1870, Tons of material, 40, 50 tons of material, everything, all the entire records of the German Navy, which then occupied, first of all, was was used to get information for the Nuremberg trials, and then was poured over by historians for the next 50 years, everything about German naval development there. That was all captured in a castle. And then the second thing they did was they got into the Waltherwerke in Hamburg, where the new German development in fast submarine technology was taking on. This man, Herman Walter, had been developing rockets and using hydrogen peroxide had made the fastest submarines um, imaginable. And he was later taken himself over to Britain to work uh, on British submarines. So you not only capture technicians, you capture the technology, the technicians, and the brains. The Russians were doing this, the Americans were doing this. We know that the Americans captured Werner von Braun, for example, the Nazi rocket scientist whose technology helped put a man on the moon. The Russians, for example, stole the entire Zeiss binocular works. That's why Russian binoculars were so good, because they nicked all the Zeiss technicians, the equipment, the, the dyes, the tools, and everything, and took it over to Russia. Everybody was looting Germany for scientists, and the British were part of that too. But also, they were capturing, you know, war criminals. They were in there at the final end of Germany after Hitler killed himself. And Admiral Dönitz was leading Germany way up there on the the Danish border. 30 assault unit was in there uh, helping to finally destroy the Nazi empire. So this small unit, which was never more than
0: 200 people. Had tremendous successes. Yeah, yes. That's incredible. Was there any... Was there any particular story that you came across in your research that somewhat blew your mind?
1: Um, um, I think some of the... It's not so much that it blew my mind in, in some sort of uh, shock factor. I think what was very interesting and, and to me was to meet these men. And I really got them just at the end. Many of them were dying or going into dementia or old warriors. It's many years afterwards, okay? And I was at their final reunion in London and the secretary of their association was fantastically helpful to me. So I did manage to interview and talk to people and and try and get the story right. And I think, I think what, not what blew my mind, but what touched me was how I remember talking to one old man and he he didn't actually have very long to live and he was telling me these stories and he was telling me about the fighting in in Normandy and some incident some terrible incident had happened in combat as these things happen, and he started crying and these were tears of sorrow and pity for the young German who had died in this in this incident, and you realise that okay, it may be 60, 70 years since the war, but these memories don't go away. These things stay with people for life. And here he was—he was a you know a sensitive lad, and it hadn't gone away. So it didn't just sort of daring do and, and and all the rest of it. Yes, these people were brave. They went through horrible things. But the pity was still there. The sense of guilt, he hadn't had anything to do with this incident. But his, his feeling for it was still alive 70 years later. And I think that's what you've got to remember, really, that war is such a mess. It is so chaotic and horrible. Yes, we're excited by it, these stories afterwards, because we're not in it. We read about it because we're living in peace, some of us. But I think that, that's, that touched me. Their memories, the things that had happened to them, the PTSD some of them went through. I think just being on the fringes, as it were, touching the hem of their coats, as it were, was sobering.
0: That was author Nicholas Rankin. You can find his book, Ian Fleming's Commandos, at all good bookstores or on Amazon. It is an absolutely tremendous read. I strongly urge you go find it. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast.